One of the things you do well, and it's rather surprising to encounter this amidst all the wonderful humor, is you put in some rather poetic descriptions in your books. You're probably thinking of the wee free men there. Yes, and, and <laughs> even even in uh, the Discworld novels, the descriptions of the light, slow light spilling mm -hmm. across yeah. the landscape. Um, there's an encounter that one of your witches has with uh, someone formed of bees. Oh. Um, Could you tell us why, how you bring those in, why you bring them in? Where does that inspiration come in? Because it fits. Um, you do what works. Uh, I think you're thinking about Granny Weatherwax and the bees in one of the books. I, it's because uh, I, I, I come back to that particular theme in the book I'm currently, um, or I've, I've just finished, which is a sequel to The Wee Freeman. Um, are you saying it's, it's kind of strange to find good writing in a fantasy book? Uh, no, I'm saying more that in a satire you expect a certain um, consistency of humor and you this these work very well but they're shot through with a kind of a beauty that isn't well, often found in satire. That, that, yes but with respect which is what people always say when they're about to be disrespectful. Okay. <laughs> um, satire satire is a spice but it's, it's not a main ingredient. And it took me a long time to realize that you can write a book that's solely a humorous book, that's funny, it's a good laugh, and there's not much else to it. But humor is also a, an approach, a, a, um, a, a spice that you add to a dish which is made of lots of things. Um, People have said about the plot of Monstrous Regiment, did I have current events in mind when I wrote it? And I said, well, yeah, but that kind of current event has been a current event throughout most of human history. We're remarkably stupid when it comes to fighting wars. It's just that people now think of what's going on in the Middle East and, and, and they, read, they read the book in the light of that. And I, and I say I had rather kind of longer term um, histories in mind uh, I just write I, I, and, and you, you th there is as, as, as people have said there is room for tragic relief as well as comic relief in a book uh, for the humour to work I mean in Monsters Regiment there are a couple of scenes um, just to bring home what happens to people in a war it's not the fact that people get killed it rather worse in many respects if you're dealing with a, a war of edged weapons and not much in the way of medical treatment, you get people who are still alive, but they are definitely dying. You know, these are the guys, as it were, coming back from the fields of Waterloo. Um, in a world without medication, um, without bandages. In in fact, you know, you're keeping your, your tunic buttoned because underneath there's just nothing but a horrible mess from which you are dying. And you can't joke about this. This is the... Yet the whole situation can have a strange humour to it. We're talking about MASH now, aren't we? MASH is set in an army hospital and people are dying, but MASH can still be funny. Um, so there's a... Uh, you, 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 you can appear to, 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 to change the mood without, I think spoiling the book. I mean, in The We Free Men, uh, 
I think the writing style is, is slightly different and it's probably a bit more lyrical in any case. Uh, but I think it's just satire, humour, tragedy, whatever, are just particular skills that a writer brings to bear on the job in hand. Your novels also feature a really rich use and powerful use of language. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us how you choose that language, where it comes from? It seems like there's more going on than just sitting around staring at your word processor filling <laughs> up the screen. Um, a Californian friend of mine that, 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 um, that um, is involved with, with helping kids for whom the education system has not been much help, described how angry a boy was to come across the word crimson. He didn't, he'd never encountered the word crimson. And it was explained to him that this was another word for red, a, a, a different kind of red. And he was very annoyed that there was another word for red, that this, he felt the universe had sprung this on him. I mean, just when you think you've got it sorted out, they tell you there's another word for red. Uh, which I thought was incredibly sad. I have to say that I think the better your vocabulary, uh, the better grasp you have on the world. Um, if you have a vocabulary of 400 words, there are some things you can't think, not properly think. You, you can feel them and get very, very frustrated, but you can't express exactly what they are. Uh, I mean, I have to give you the, the, the basic spiel here. I didn't read at all for pleasure until I was 10 years old. And then reading hit me all at once, as it, as it does with so many of us. And I went from a kid who didn't read to a kid that read absolutely everything he could get his hands on. The first book I ever bought for myself, as far as I can remember, was Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. And the first book I actually asked my parents to, to buy me that wasn't like a comic annual was a dictionary. Because I was coming across words that I didn't understand in the books I was reading, but I definitely, definitely wanted to find out what they meant. And um, the, the, the first, the first fifth, you know, between 10 years old and, and, and 15 or 16 years old, I just read like a mad thing. And, and just like my character Tiffany in The We Free Men, I had a reading vocabulary that was much, much bigger than my uh, speaking vocabulary. So I, I thought there was a kind of ghost called a perhantum and a kind of small giant called an ogre, because I didn't know how to pronounce the words. Uh, and later on, I'd heard, I heard someone say, Phantom, Phantom, that's what it is. And it's an ogre, not an ogre. Uh, and I had this, 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 this great thirst for reading. And, and, sort of, and I suppose I built up a, 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 a vocabulary that way. Also, I haunted the local secondhand bookshops because I could afford to buy secondhand books. And while I wasn't realizing it at the time i was reading some of the best humorists of the 19th and 20th century and lots and lots of other stuff i'd read any book that looked as if it w would be interesting and i got the best education it's possible to have which is the one that you don't know is actually happening to you you know you think you're having fun and you're getting an education 
Now, now you're writing more books for children. You wrote the Johnny and the Bomb yeah, series, yeah. Mm-hmm. the Bromelia trilogy, and now we're with the We Free Men and Maurice and his educated rodents. Are you trying to address education in your books? Um, in the We Free Men, certainly. Uh, and in, you do in, so so well. Too. Well, in in the um, <laughs> the, the uh, education in 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 the world or that part of Discworld in which The We Free Men is set, it, it is, is considered a kind of add-on. And, and when you have lots of little isolated communities, people like, uh, like peddlers and, and, and tinkers and blacksmiths, uh, they, they go from place to place. Well, the teachers are just another band of itinerant wanderers, and, and, and they're rather like carnival shrills. You know, they, they, they'll set up their stall and, 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 and kind of drum up, drum up trade, and, and, and the kids are given... I mean, this is a world, rather like kind of the 18th century, a world in which there is no real childhood. You're just a small adult. You make yourself, you know, the girls help mum, uh, the boys help dad, you know, the boys are, you know, can pump the bellows in the, in the forge, everyone looks after the sheep. Um, and, and the kids are sort of really being trained to be adults and do what their parents did. And education is something that, uh, no, no, childhood, in fact, is something that happens in your spare time. You know, if you've got the eggs, you've got the sheep in, and the cows have been milked, you can go out and play with your friends. And occasionally, if the teachers are in town, the kids are get, given a few eggs or some vegetables, and, and they go down and decide what they want to learn today. And the teachers kind of respond to this. They, they get very bad kind of education, but they can pick up where a bit about the continents, a bit, you know, a bit about zoology. Uh, teachers put up, say, things like everything you want, ever wanted to know about the ampersand or you know, inverted commas completely explained, uh, exclamation marks for fun and profit. And it's kind of a kind of a little buyer's market for education. Um, but, but Tiffany, my, my heroine, um, she's a very bright kid and she read the dictionary. They, they've got a dictionary in, in, in that... that in in the the farmhouse and she read it all the way through to the end because no one told her that you weren't supposed to and she loves the sound and feel of words and 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 her love of them i think permeates the book because it's my love of words and i think the the more words you know how to use the easier it is for you to think can you comment on the cultural import of fairy tales Because you're telling, in a way, fairy tales. Oh yeah, yes, but but most most of them, most stories are sooner or later a fairy tale of some sort. Uh, it's often thought that fairy tales and, and we'll in, let's include fantasy in the, in this because there's a kind of big blur here. Um, fairy tales are full of instructions, largely prohibitions. You must not enter the wood you must not uh, stray from the path you must not open the door you must not talk to any stranger that you meet equally there are um, uh, some things that you must do even if it's even if they're not quite um, quite expressed in this way you must help the old lady because she's bound to be a witch <laughs> Um, you must do what you're t- you told. You must be home by midnight. Um, it's interesting to, 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 
to, to speculate on, on why the stories were formed in the way that they were. Uh, now it's possible for the likes of me to come along and, and via the character of Tiffany start looking at these fairy tales in a new light. I mean, she, one reason she decides she wants to be a witch is that she reads one of the only other books in the house, which is a very old book of fairy tales, and it's, one story starts, In the middle of the forest lived a wicked old witch. And her first thought is, where's the evidence? You know, you're told it's a handsome prince. You're told there's a wicked witch. Um, is he really handsome? Is she really, really wicked? Let's read on and find out. But let's not assume because someone else says so that the witch is wicked. Because in the village where she lived, an old lady whose only crime, as far as anyone can see, was the fact that she was very old, lived by herself and had some books, actually has her house destroyed and her cat killed and she's driven out to die in the snow because a boy has gone missing and, well, everyone knows old ladies that live by themselves and have got books are witches and it must have been her. And, and she kind of gets this link between the didactic nature of fairy tales and, and the, the, the way people act, act as a result. But fairy tales are a kind of national resource. We can all have so much fun with them. You commented earlier that a lot of people are finding parallels between the current situation in the Middle East and the war that you're fighting in Monstrous Regiment. Mm. Do you think that fantasy novels can make a difference? Fantasy is kind of like an exercise bicycle for the mind. Um, it might not actually take you anywhere but it, it can tone up the muscles that will. Um, science fiction, which, to be frank, is largely a subset of fantasy, but with nuts and bolts painted on the outside, uh, can do the same thing. It, it, it questions your view of reality. Um, let us not forget, for example, that for many years we thought we were up against an evil empire. Okay? And it turns out this evil empire can't pay its own phone bills. There's like six billion guys under, under, uh, under arms, but they've only got one bullet. The submarines are rusting and sinking. And, and, um, and, and was it that evil? It, it seems to have kind of melted away. There were certain evil aspects to it. And let's not, let's not believe for one moment that these, these little evils don't exist in our own society, in spades sometimes. Um, but, but if I want to say anything at all, it's don't listen to fairy tales. Um, like, like the character of Tiffany, she starts thinking for herself. I mean, think of Hansel and Gretel. I mean, they're about seven or eight years old. The witch pushes Hansel in the oven. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that uh, ovens in the Black Forest were big enough to hold a seven-year-old kid. I mean, they're this big. You know, they were, I know what, old, what the ovens in old cottages were like. They were for baking your bread in. You probably couldn't get a, a small child in one without chopping them up, and there's no mention of that. I mean, it's, fairy tales give you all this stuff, but, but they don't expect you to think. I mean... Do you really think, sitting there, that, the, that a, a shoe size is, is, is some kind of good way of finding out who, who, the, who your beloved is? I mean, Cinderella runs out into the city and uh, the handsome prince sends all the courtiers out with the shoe. Now, uh, let's think. Size 7, narrow fit. 
how many girls in the city are going to fit a size 7 narrow fit? Probably about, I don't know, a good 10% of them, I would imagine. I mean, how, what kind of basis is this to, you know, to run a country? Uh, but, but fairy tales are fun. I mean, there, there is stuff in there uh, that, that can be useful. Um, G.K. Chesterton, uh, Chesterton, who I, I quoted at the beginning, very famously said that it is held against fairy tales that they tell children that there are monsters. Um, in fact, this is not true. Children already know that there are monsters. Uh, fairy tales tell children that monsters can be killed. Now, one thing I'm wondering is, in Discworld, are we going to see a Discworld novel in which some of your characters attempt to adapt a literary property into a stage or film? <laughs> Has been done. Uh, I, did, I did moving pictures. One of the nice... Uh, which, um, one of the nice things uh, about being a writer especially one with an interest in history, is that you don't actually have to invent very much if you know where your sources are. And in the Discworld novel Moving Pictures, um, uh, uh, some, uh, uh, a kind of a sandy beach not too far from the main city of um, uh, Ankh-Morpork becomes the, uh, the basis of the, a, a film industry. They use imps that can paint pictures very fast. I mean, the actual movie side of it, the technology of the movie is to some extent magical. But the actual growth of, of, of if you like, a fantasy version of Hollywood, um, I mean, how can I put it? Hollywood happened very quickly. It really did happen very quickly. And in the early days of Hollywood, carpenters got paid more than the actors. Because all you really had to do was be able to stand in front of a camera. You didn't even have to memorise lines, after all, because they weren't talking. And, you know, had to know what to do with your hands. But a carpenter, a good carpenter, was worth serious money, and Hollywood couldn't get enough of them. Um, and it was very, it was, it was fun to, to uh, parody the development, albeit over a few months rather than, than, than a few years, the development of Hollywood in a fantasy world and I hardly had to invent anything at all you know we're talking about the, the great days of the of the silent movies when you know you'd, you'd shoot two of them back to back in a day you know you, 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 because the world was crying out for these things and um and and you know you, you, there no special effects and, and everyone worked very hard and and, and everyone mucked in to help and it, it must have been a, a great time to be alive um, and then, of course, there, there was the, the, the operatic Discworld book, Masquerade, which is kind of what Phantom of the Opera would have been if people had acted sensibly. Um, Discworld can cover a lot of things. I'm wondering, did any of the elements of moving pictures reflect your own experience with moving pictures? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I've had an uh, erratic relationship with the movies. Uh, there's one Discworld book, Mort, which is still out there, going through development heck and has been for some ten years. Uh, I've made a lot of money out of Discworld. Um, currently, Monstrous Regiment is the number one hardcover in the UK and Nightwatch is the number one paperback. And that makes... Monstrous Regiment, the 26th consecutive number one. Um, and on a worldwide basis, I've made a lot of money. And, and 
when movies approach you, they 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 say we have money, and I say, but I have money. Can you make movies? And a lot of the people who approach me want to own rights. They can't make a movie. They haven't got a studio. They you know the whole way the movie system works seems to be a bit strange. Um, but they want to own rights in case those rights are valuable. Um, and I will, I will sell rights if they think if I think there's a halfway chance that the movie will be made. So we kind of sort of face each other off, and nothing much happens. Um, I personally don't want to see. Uh, 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 I mean, uh, death with a um, rocket launcher and amazing kung fu grip, or something like that, and that. that it's funny too how in all movie deals now the merchandising seems to figure very, very largely right on day one. You know, when you grow up, you think it, it's a movie, and then there's merchandising. Increasingly, it seems to be there's merchandising, and then we better make the movie in order to give the merchandise some kind of credibility. Um, it's an erratic thing. But what is um, exciting me though is is the way that that Discworld has become um, a, a dramatic. Thing. At any one time, somewhere in the world, there are between 20 and 25 Discworld plays uh, in preparation or production, all largely by amateur groups, and it's happening more and more in the US now. I'm very amiable about it. We, we, um, I, I've uh, effectively given the dramatic rights to the Orangutan Foundation in the UK, so the royalties are not particularly high, and they go directly to a charity. Because I'm just pleased that people are doing this. And I get a real kick out of the fact that, that this is going on all over the world. And I've been to one or two. I went to a professional version um, of one of the Discworld plays in, uh, in Prague a couple of years ago. And it was absolutely magnificent. I laughed all the way through and I don't understand Czech. They said afterwards, How did you, where did you know where to laugh? I said, because I recognise the rhythms. You know, I reckon that, and I and I know how the book goes, and, and it was great. Uh, and they're, they're, they're very big in Germany and Australia too, right at this moment. And that I get real fun because that's real people. Uh, movies have become rather kind of basically like computers, um, whereas the stage is real people. And and the thought that that maybe 30 or 40 people are going to devote every spare evening for two or three months into turning one of my books into a stage production. That gives me a kick that movies can't. I'm wondering if you want, are willing to talk about the statistic I read that 1% of the books sold in the UK are your books. Well, that was pre-J.K. Rowling, but, but, but I'm not actually certain how much difference that would would now make uh it was certainly said this was adult fiction so mm -hmm. so it probably is right um one percent and ten percent of all the fantasy uh which which mapped out as one percent of all now it said all the books which can't possibly be right when you think of cookbooks i suspect they meant of all the fiction well now there is a Discworld cookbook Oh, there is a Discworld cookbook, yeah, which is increasingly <laughs> available in the US, I'm pleased to say. Um, Douglas Adams remarked about this. After, after you've been around for long enough, the, the myths grow up that you, even you don't know whether they're right or, or wrong. I sell a lot of books. Uh, 
probably is probably about 33 million by now. My agent doesn't bother to count anymore. He's got a little time on his computer. You know, X number of months go past. And, and, and that's what happens when you've got a lot of titles and they're translated into lots of languages and you suddenly find out that you're really big in Estonia. Oh, you smile. Nice country, Estonia. Well, well behind President Bush in his war against terrorism. But I, <laughs> I went there a few years ago um, and, and it turned out the Prime Minister was a fan. And I was the Prime Minister and, and, and his foreign, foreign Affairs advisor and I sat down and had a cup of tea talking about the state of the world. And you think, ah, Estonia. Um, not very big, admittedly, 1.2 million, but a very pleasant country. Um, that's a curious thing, actually, with, with the English language writers. Uh, when you're a Brit, you think, ah, America must be the market to conquer. And then you forget that about an hour and a half flying time away, there's Germany full of educated Germans and there's 80 million of them. <laughs> you think, hey, maybe just selling the German rights is a good idea. But I'm very pleased, actually, um, although I've been published usually very, very badly in the US since the, the 80s, um, suddenly it's all taken off for me in the last maybe four maximum five years because suddenly I had an, um, an, an editor and a publicist who were given real support from above and suddenly I've been doing signing tours and the books are getting a lot more publicity and um, I can actually walk into bookshops now and find my books that would never happen ten years ago. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to comment on the state of UK and US publishing because as a reader it's constantly frustrating to me to see titles published in the UK, have to wait a year or more to get them in the well, US, and yeah, I think it um, goes the other way, too. From, yeah, um, I think it's probably more of a one-way thing. I think it's easier for us to get the US stuff. Um, sometimes, you know, back in the, in, in, in the, the 90s, my books were published in the US 18 months or two years after the UK. Um, over the last few years, uh, largely because I started to jump up and down, um, things have been harmonised, and it really, really is tough for me because I finish a book and it's going to go through two editing processes, two lots of proofreading. E everything is happening, you know, it goes off in two different directions at the same time, so it's a lots, lot of stuff I have to deal with. Because two editors come back with different editorial comments and stuff. But the end result is the book, like Monstrous Regiments, come out on the same day in the UK and in the US. And at the moment, no one's blinking and, and, all the, and the publishers are happy to harmonise things like this because the spectre of Amazon ha hangs over everybody. Be you know, once upon a time, it didn't really matter because, you know, it, it was quite hard to get a book if it wasn't published in that country. Not anymore. If, if the book isn't out there, you'll get it one way or the other wherever it's been published. Yes. Now, your publicist here is Jack Womack, mm -hmm. who's a, himself a science fiction writer. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how publicity is working for you in the U.S. as a result? Um, well, I've always been... I mean, it was years, years and years in, in uh, of Discworld in the UK before anyone kind of noticed. Uh, I, I think I had about six number ones before I actually got any, any sort of 
media attention. Because <laughs> I said, what's all this happening? You know, and, and this guy's name keeps appearing. Because what I used to do, if I, did a, I, I used to do ferocious signing tours. I mean, really, I, I, I'd die if I tried to do them now. Four bookshops a day, things like that. Because um, I enjoyed doing it. And it was, it was a word of mouth thing. You just kept, you, you did, I did two tours a year and I worked hard and and and, um, and it, it, it's possible in a, in a fairly small um, um, busy country um, like Britain to to simply go out there and build a reputation from the bottom up not because you've been seen on the television not because you've been getting a lot of media but simply because you've been putting out the books and getting behind the books in fact my more the book you're just reading that was the fourth Discworld novel that was the first one to get into the bestseller list and it got into number two just behind Stephen King on that occasion and I think that actually jerked the publisher in that into actually doing some publicity because they're thinking hey if this guy is selling so well and we're not really doing anything maybe we better do something otherwise people will think hey guys can get to number one without having a publicity department and we'll all get sacked. <laughs> um, suddenly I was on the road an awful lot. I mean, I worked extremely hard on it. Uh, and this particular tour has been quite grueling, you know, late nights and early starts and all the stuff you hear about signing tours. Although Jack has seen to it that I do have some rest time. That, that's what's that's so nice about having, a, having another author as a publicist. Um, it, 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 I... I, I uh, what does annoy me increasingly these days, there's, there's a limited amount of openings. There's a little, oh, how can I put it? People buy loads and loads of books. Um, but the amount of kind of PR space and airtime for books is fairly small. Um, and I can only speak with authority about the UK. A jobbing author, an author whose job is being an author, who writes books um, professionally, doesn't have that much access to the media because if you like the book spaces in the media are filled by M madonna's children's book you know i understand it's quite good do we know who voted uh good question <laughs> um, not you i guess no um what i mean is it, it, it uh, and such uh, there, there's a there's a definite tendency I, I think it's possibly less marked here in the in the, the u.s um, to consider books mean books that have been written by celebrities, you know, a footballer's biography, um, that that kind of stuff. And I, um, it, it was uh, I'll, I'll little, tell you a little story. It, some time ago, I was on a signing tour, and a bookshop that when I was going to go about a, this was in the UK. Uh, the following week, phoned up to cancel the signing, and we said, "Well, why?" And they said, "Well, we've had." Two signings, we just had two signings and nobody turned up to them. And, I, uh, and my publicist said, well, people will turn up to Terry's. And he said, yeah, but the staff are now so demoralized, we just can't face another signing tour. And these were both celebrity books. And the celebrity had turned up and a few people had come along to peek at the celebrity, but they hadn't bought the book. And the shopper just kind of, the morale of the staff had just sunk. See, that's what happens, you see, if you just get the celebrities along. And I was doing uh, in a, uh, uh, a signing in, in a big city and, and I happened to be in the manager's office. Um, 
and uh, there was a picture on the wall of him shaking hands with a celebrity author who I shan't name and I said oh I see you had such and such here uh, he said oh yes that was the best signing we ever had the shop was full of people and I said wow you know how many books did you sell I said, oh, about 120 and I said well that's interesting I've just had a four-hour signing in your shop we got rid of about 260 hardcovers um, and the better part of 400 paperbacks um, so it wasn't mine the best signing. And he said, well, everyone knows you have big signings. What he meant was somehow he got to shake hands with a celebrity and that was very important. You just have to put up with that in the book business. It is possible if, 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 if you, the product, if you'd excuse me putting, like that, putting it like that, is, is good enough to succeed by just getting out there and plugging away. You've got a lot of back catalog too, so that even now, within the past four years, as your popularity has risen in mm. the United States, your the people who have come to you with books like oh, yeah, Nightwatch yeah, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. Thief of Time now have this fantastic bonanza to look back and say, "My God, I that love these it. four yeah. books." I mean, I must I must hand it to the to to, to Jennifer Braille, my editor at Harper Collins, um, because she pushed to get when the book started becoming popular suddenly there was this great gulf of maybe 15 or more books which, which are now which were, were then out of print. The rights had reverted, fortunately. <laughs> and they said, okay. Um, and they realized that, that the only way that, 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 that if, if the front list was going to have any kind of uh, foundation to it, there had to be the back list. And they've actually found the back list is very, very successful because... The front list is getting the publicity, and people say, where can we get more of this stuff? And now I can go into a bookshop, and there's like half a shelf of Discworld. Um, how long that will last, I don't know. But, but um, I mean, HarperCollins, in my case, have done some, some uh, you know, after, have kind of restored my faith in, in, in sensible publishing. They realize that the way to give the, the, uh, the front list some impetus was to have the back list there. And... It's been great. I'm mean, getting royalties and <laughs> royalties from America. What are they? Um, and and they, they sent me thinking. You know, we've now printed. You know, the 150,000 of this particular backlist title is out there. Uh, they're selling far, far more than they ever did in the first time they were they were published. I mean, it's all, all great stuff as far as I'm concerned. Who put the copyright after Discworld? Discworld. TM. TM. <laughs> is that um, you or? Well, not me. Well, I mean. It, it, You've got to admit, beyond a certain point, you become, as it were, an organization. Um, and there are little precautions that you have to do. And these aren't there to persecute fans for being fanish. I was a, I'm was a fan. I, was, I went to my first science fiction convention when I was 13. Uh, but you have to... You know, um, we, 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 we're copyrighted and trademarked and, and, and stuff like that. And you have to do it. You have to do it for when people get uh, either get uh, greedy or stupid. You just have to have that little bit of muscle behind you. Uh, you, you, because unfortunately, you live in a businessman's world. Could you tell? Have you encountered any greedy or stupid people? Oh yeah, yeah. Gen- generally connected with eBay in one. <laughs> 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 the great me- eBay, the great melting pot. 
um, yeah, and, and mostly it's it's it, it, it's kind of you know, dumb things happen, and people say, "Well, uh, I thought it would be, I thought you would be pleased," or you know, "I only wanted to give other people the opportunity." And yeah, yeah, right, yeah. That doesn't actually excuse you know secretly recording me reading from one of my books and selling it at five quid a time. Um, it's unfortunate that that one should have to think like this. Um, but times are more complex. I mean, we, a couple of occasions, fans have want, asked if they can do fan movies. This sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? And, and there's, there's some guys doing one down in Australia right now. Um, and we've had to think of how to do a contract. A bunch of fans want to do a movie. Uh, and we took some advice. And the only way is to come up with a contract that says, you are scum. Scum, 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 <laughs> and I am the man, and I own all the rights, absolutely all the rights in absolutely everything, everywhere, and your first-born son and everything, and goes on like that, right? And the whole point is, like, right, you sign this, sign this, right? Now you can pretty much do anything you want, you know. Keep in touch with me, and if I think you're being dumb, I'll let you know. The whole point of the contract is that if ever we have a big movie deal, we uh, lawyers will see that, 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 that this, this fan thing is something we have controlled. Believe me, if you, if you come up with a loose contract, someone somewhere these days, because this world is, the title is worth quite a lot, has some creative little idea of their own. Uh, and we have run into a few little difficulties like that. So, so the way we find is, is proceed is, is by saying you have no rights whatsoever, including a right to breathe. And once they sign that, they say, right, now you can do anything. I know exactly what you want to do. Go off and do it. Have fun. Let me know when it's done. Um, and, and it kind of works. Because this is the problem now, a successful author with... with with a kind of foot in fandom has to face. Back in the 60s, you never had to think like this. But back in the 60s, um, there was no technology which would allow someone to scan in a book and put it on the internet in about 30 minutes. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've seen fan movies of some of Harry Harrison's works and things like that. I mean, it's, it's great. And it's, I think it's still possible to, to, to allow fans that kind of slack but but you have to put this this strange uh cast iron legal framework around everything to protect them as well as yourself because uh, believe me when you're dealing with real movie lawyers the world becomes a much more complicated place a much more dangerous place i would presume yeah fiscally uh, at least well probably not for me because as i said before i i i, I I'm starting from from the point of view that that I'm very very easily a millionaire, uh, so I'm not too worried. You know, I, I I don't I don't have to bend too far just because of the money. Um, but you you just want to make certain that that someone, some nice kind little fan, suddenly doesn't think, well, hang on, this is a bit of a property. I'm you know I'd better go and oh, we 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 we've had little problems little problems which, which have uh, there, was, there was one guy that <laughs> wrote to me I wrote some fan fiction and you must have seen it because the plot of one of my books uh, 
uses one of my ideas. I think we should have a we we should have a conversation about this. You know, it was worded rather like that. Like I'm going to make big trouble for you. And I looked at the dates, and I don't know, fanfic turns up all over the web, and I don't go looking for it, and I sure as hell don't read it. Uh, and we looked at some dates. Uh, and I looked back, or my agent wrote back and said, um, you're probably unaware of, of how far ahead of publication an author has to turn in a book. Uh, the time you've given for the publication of your fan fiction on the web was the temp about the time reviewers were getting the bound-proof copy for review. <laughs> and that one's, but anyway, it's her. I mean, the, well, as, as you probably know, even fan fiction, which, is, uh, which has got a proud history, is now coming under a certain amount of scrutiny. It, it's strange we should have to, uh, to take precautions. I mean, I, once upon a time, as an author, you wouldn't think about it. Someone sends you a manuscript. If you've got five minutes, you'd look at it. See, is this kid any good? You know, and right back saying, well, you've got to tighten up. You've got to do this. Uh, you know, basically, now it, it arrives. You don't look at it. And why don't you look at it? You don't look at it. Just in case, in a couple of years' time, someone says, you used my idea. Because you live in a world now where, where accusation, it counts as proof. Sure. Uh, think of the trouble J.K. Rowling had a few years ago, um, merely with the allegations of her having lifted sp you know, stuff in Harry Potter from someone else. Um, I think... I just don't want to go through that. So the rule is now that my agent or my PA or the publishers, they carefully remove that stuff and just send me the note, you know, the covering letter. And I write back the explanatory letter saying, no, I know you wouldn't do it, but someone would. And I don't know who it's going to be. And so I try and avoid the, the, the whole thing. And it's sad that this should be the case because there's always been a tradition of... of and especially, I think, in the science fiction and fantasy field, of professionals helping um, wannabe writers. We've been speaking with Terry Pratchett. <laughs> He's the author of many Discworld novels. Thank you, Terry. Thank you.